welcome to the latest episode of the Noid Knowledge Podcast. I'm Meg LaRue, your podcast co-host and group editorial director of Cannabis Science and Technology and Cannabis Patient Care Magazines. And I'm Evan Friedman, Vice President of Scientific Cell Company and your other host here at the Noid Knowledge Podcast. This month, we are excited to be joined by Dr. Julie Kowalski. Julie is a technical consultant serving the cannabis and hemp testing markets. Her professional experience includes working in cannabis labs, bringing expertise in troubleshooting, method development, and validation for GC, GCMS, LC, and LCMS MS. She also performs ISO 17025 laboratory accreditation assessments. Julie is very active in the scientific community, volunteering for various organizations, including serving as the co-chair of the AOAC CASP Chemistry Working Group and participating on the AOAC CASP Proficiency Testing Advisory Task Force and serving on AOAC's expert review panels. She is also serving as the analytical program chair for this year's Cannabis Science Conference events. Today, we'll be discussing Julie's background, knowledge about chromatography and method development, some of the challenges in cannabis and hemp testing, and finally, a little preview of the upcoming Cannabis Science Conference spring event. Let's jump right in and expand our NOID knowledge. Thank you for joining us, Julie. So we usually like to start our episodes with some background and context for the listeners. Can you share your cannabis origin story, how you got to where you are now? Sure, I can do that. Um, so I was working for a company called ResTech. So for some of your analytical folks out there, I'm sure they'll recognize that name. Um, chromatography manufacturer. Uh, they also manufacture some other products. And I, I'd been working there for right out of grad school and um, had cover, had been covering the food and food safety market. So primarily, I mean, a lot of pesticide work. Uh, other chemical residue work. And about 2011, um, a colleague of mine, Jack Cochran, got the idea to to look at pesticides in cannabis. And uh, luckily at that time, um, we also had another friend who was a professor at Penn State University, uh, Dr. Frank Dorman. And so he had actually had access to cannabis material that was seized from campus. And, um, That's awesome. and yeah, so uh, it was really funny, actually. So uh, so a group of us, you know, from ResTech, you know, prepared all the supplies. And um, I, I mean, Frank's a analytical guy, so he had all of the instrumentation and we, we met over there. Um, to you know, process samples and you know just see what it's like to work in in cannabis, and it was really funny because the the police, uh, the university police, showed up with like a plastic bin that you store like crafting materials in it because it had all these little drawers in it, <laughs> and each one had fl- like flour in it, and there was a SpongeBob placemat <laughs> that had like drawer one was, you know, <laughs> like OG Kush. Drawer two is, you know, so it was like a little menu. And this was like part of the seized material that we actually did my first my first project on. So um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how we got started with it. Um, I presented that work at AOAC, I think that year. So it was like 2011. And then the small kind of subgroup of, of uh, the applications group at ResTech, we sort of just started working on more and more cannabis projects. Um, Amanda Rigdon, some people from back in the day, um, she was really early on in, in working on some cannabinoids and residual solvents, uh, some stuff like that. And so, yeah, so we just started working on um, projects as we could, uh, posted a lot on their chromablography, which some of that stuff still exists. Mm-hmm. And uh, so through that, then I was working on a collaboration with Shimatsu on pesticides with one of their customers in Washington state that had, you know, like a whole suite of their instrumentation and they wanted some help with pesticides. So I came out for I don't know, maybe like two weeks, we banged through a bunch of work and like probably a year later, um, they lured me out to be the lab director uh, for that lab in Washington state. Mm-hmm. 
so that's where it started. <clears throat> I worked there um, for a few years and learned a lot in that experience and then um, struck out on my own. I was kind of consulting for people for free, so I thought maybe I should try to just do it full time. And that's what I've been doing the last three years. So, yeah, wow. it's been good. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. Um, where, where in this timeline did rest tech come out with like the C 18 Raptor column? Oh, this, the Raptor. I mean, I think that that, <clears throat> Oh boy, this is asking me to go back, but I believe <laughs> that that preexisted the Raptor line, I believe preexisted ca cannabis, right? Okay. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I will say that's a great, that's a great column. I love that. Comment. Yeah, I, I mean, you, yeah. you you talk to analytical folks and basically everybody loves that column. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, very it's good. Real very nice reproducible. Yeah. And good that's separation. one of the things. Yep. Good separation and reproducible. That's one of the things about cannabinoids is you can get shifting. Um, and I've, I've actually done quite a bit of work to try to pinpoint exactly what the issue is. So like it'll, <clears throat> it'll run fine and then all of a sudden you get the shifting. So if anyone out there knows why it does it, <laughs> because I'm not the only one that sees it, um, I think it's pH related potentially, but I haven't been able to nail it down exactly. So let me know if you if anyone out there knows. <laughs> so. Nice. It's a solid mystery for, for our viewers <laughs> to solve themselves. Yes. <laughs> So since you were kind of like early on in the cannabis testing market, did you get a lot of like pushback from other analytical scientists? Like, you know, why are you going into this illicit field or was it, were people open even in like 2011 to doing it? Um, I think the, I think some people were supportive that were maybe pro cannabis anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but there were a lot of, colleagues I, I knew primarily professionally that that were like what are you thinking type of thing yeah. <laughs> um, you know you're you know this is kind of a joke you know people have labs in you know garden sheds and like what are you you know as like someone who's pretty far along in there I was like a senior scientist by that time they're like someone pretty far along why are you why are you jumping into this? And I was just like, it's just too exciting. It's just forbidden fruit. You know, we, a, a new matrix that's really, really challenging that we don't, we, you know, haven't been able to play with There's just so many things to uh, just basic stuff that we get to learn and explore. Um, and then on a personal note, you know, I feel like people, I do feel like there's medical benefits and, you know, I want people to have safe medicine, if at all possible. Uh, my mom has MS, and so although she doesn't use cannabis, um, she, you know, it's one of those things where I want I want people that choose to do it to to have safe access. So that's for me um, also part of the the motivation. So yeah, that's great. I think that's really commendable and yeah. and so true and needed. Yeah, and and right the the answer to that question of why you're doing this, well, I mean, the senior scientists are needed. There's still not too many senior scientists out there in the field, even though there's plenty of labs. <laughs> yeah, that is that is true. <laughs> yeah. So uh, along the line of there's plenty of labs, uh, can you tell us more about? your work in terms of laboratory accreditation. What, what are some of the challenges and issues you see with these labs and, uh, and the accreditation process? And like, how, how do you take a lab that's like trying to be accredited or already accredited that has problems and put them back on track? That's a, a Big question. Um, so <laughs> I, so I got trained as a seventeen oh two five assessor about three years ago. Um, I don't do it full time, and I, I do other laboratories besides cannabis. So anything that kind of matches my analytical skill set. Saying that I have done a lot of cannabis labs, um, and also my clients are primarily cannabis labs, and so 
sort of getting them through the process or going in and trying to fix things is, is part of what I do. I think probably what I see initially is um, in, in either scenario um, is that people don't really understand the standard itself. So when I talk about the standard, I mean, 17, ISO 17025, the document, the standard, the rules of the road that you're supposed to be complying to. And so people don't really understand what it is and what it isn't. Um, and so they kind of look at it as, oh, it's this paperwork that we have to do. Um, <laughs> And then we just have to we just have to do this paperwork and you know a month out from our next audit or assessment we're just going to cruise through all this back paperwork that we have to get done um instead of looking at it as it's really like a framework that you can build your laboratory on and so sometimes people are like well when do i when they're starting up a lab when do i have to start doing iso stuff i'm like you need to like before you start like you need to start doing like thinking about how you're going to implement it and how you're going to build it is part of the framework of your business your laboratory so that you're not trying to insert it later right it can be the backbone of your of your structure of your business and how you do things but if you already established all that and now you're trying to force another structure in it doesn't work that well so right so at, at its core what what is it? It's a quality management framework, right? Yeah. So part of it's quality management and part of it is our kind of practices that ensure the validity of your results. So that's what the standard is. It is for laboratories, um, the framework that you use to ensure that you have competency in what you're doing to ensure competency, right? And so part of it's technical, part of it's quality management, um, and the, the thing is, is it's not just written for analytical labs. I mean, it's written for calibration labs yeah. that do services. And so it is, it, it covers a lot of necessary things, but it is vague. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was, I was actually very surprised to encounter this standard when I entered cannabis because my parent company has a 17025 accredited laboratory where we produce uh, a, and certify calibration standards for uh, UV vis spectrophotometers. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I mean, like I, I've been familiar with this standard for for long time, and then I got into cannabis, and I'm like, wait, I use this over here. What is this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so how it did big. it get involved then? Like, how did how did it get chosen to come into cannabis? Is it just kind of like labs that were already using it? Kind of. I, I think regular. I, I don't know exactly where it came from, but I I suspect that. Um, I mean, it's it can be kind of expensive and lengthy, and if you don't really have someone that understands the standard, it can be really mm, problematic to implement. Um, so I suspect that because it is a laboratory standard, there's other industries where you are ISO 17025 as a testing laboratory in other markets. I think regulators probably were accustomed to seeing that like environmental labs or whatever. And so if, you know, your department of ecology that, that does, uh, you know, inspections of water quality and those are ISO, then they were like, oh, well, we'll just make, we'll adopt that. Because it is a generic standard, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think it probably was forced on initially by regulators, but. That that seems right. I mean. <laughs> yeah. I, Best guess. Well, it's, I, yeah. it, it's funny because the perspective from inside the cannabis industry is like, let's invent everything new. Let's start from scratch. Nobody's ever done this before, but almost yeah. all the things have have been done in one shape or form elsewhere. And uh, you see a lot of people with success in cannabis that take their expertise in this thing that's useful and bring it in and and, and apply it properly. So, uh, yeah. a, and I'm, I mean, a, the, the quality uh, management system for a lab 
for the most part, doesn't have to change that much, depend, mm -hmm. despite yep. what what your matrix is. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, somebody said, oh, we don't have to invent something new. We'll just shoehorn this thing in there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and it, it can, you know, it can work. It's just, I think it's just people understanding what it is and, and sort of how to use it to, to do what it's intended to, which is in help ensure competency, you know? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, the biggest, probably the biggest mistake there's two. So there's two big mistakes that I see. One is, people write themselves into a corner. So they, they go through and they write this like 50, 100 page quality manual with all this detail in it on just, just anything. Uh, every time we get a complaint, it's going to be logged five different ways. It's going to be re reviewed within 14 days. There's going to be, in a, you know, there's this whole process on like every single thing. And then they, it's, it's like overwhelming Right. And then they don't follow it. So now I have to give you deficiencies because you're not following your own processes and procedures. So um, I think people go in and, and like build something really complicated and then sort of get into trouble instead of going in and being like, OK, what what do we need right now at the beginning? And then, at, you know, and then updating it, actively updating it as you know, your business grows or you diversify or whatever, you know, grow it with the business. Don't go in and, and put this super complicated thing that you, you know, for the most part, you don't need. Um, and then the other one is people, I think, sort of take advantage of some of the technical clauses. So if you, if you read, you know, the technical some of the technical sections about method selection, method development, and method validation kind of boils down to you, you validate or verify to the, it's fit for purpose. What do your customers need? Um, and what do you feel is needed, right? The rigor of it, how, how you validate it is kind of, what you feel the need of the, the intended purpose of that data, right? So it's not going to go in and tell you to run a bunch of replicates or do this or do that. It's just going to, that's basically what it boils down to. So that means you can do like the world's worst validation. And if you are telling me that this is what your opinion is on all that is needed for the intended purpose of this data and it meets your client needs, that I can't really say anything to you, right? So it doesn't ensure that there's these stellar validations going on or that there's these great methods that are being developed. It doesn't ensure that, right? Because I don't, I'm not the person that does fit for purpose for you. You as the organization do it. Now, if it's, if it's lacking in, in something and I can make a technical argument um, or something is wrong, then that's a little bit different, right? So, so but, it doesn't, but just loose yeah. validation isn't really sufficient. That, yeah. That's well, kind of comes down to opinion at some point. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't guarantee, I think what people think it does from a technical standpoint. So people, I think people take sort of take advantage of that and say like, what's the minimum, the absolute minimum we can get away with instead of, using it as intended, which is what is fit for purpose. So, so really what the, the two problems you see are the extremes, right? Yeah. E either they've done way too much and specified everything uh, to a fault, or they've specified as little as possible yes. so that there's, <laughs> there's, there's basically nothing left to review. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those are big problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, how often, once people are accredited, how often are they audited? Um, every well, every two. I think every two years are for renewal, um, and then there's usually a surveillance uh, audit in between, which yeah. is not as as robust. So, yeah, our, our experience uh, has been that it's like. On the off years, it's sort of a 
self-audit. Uh, so, like, uh, there's... You, you, the auditor doesn't necessarily come in. You, you collect all the information and, and either you send it off or you just file it. And, and on, the, on the renewal years, there's... It's far more intense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely... Could you go back to your other point? I think it... If I saw that a lab was accredited, I would, in my mind, that would make them more trustworthy to me and that, like, their results would be more valid, but maybe that's not necessarily the case. Kind I of. mean, that's the goal, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that it, it does it in the same way that we think about it, right? And I, and I really didn't, I kind of thought the same thing too until I was trained and I understood the, the standard, what it means, and my role as an assessor, you know, I can't go in and be like, your method is not good based <laughs> on my opinion. Like, I don't do, like, you can't do that. I look to see if if their method meets the standard, right? Mm-hmm. That's all I'm looking at. So, yeah. Wow. Crazy. Um, so just changing tracks a little bit here. So you're also very involved in a lot of educational efforts throughout the cannabis industry, such as e-symposiums and webcasts and conferences. So what is your favorite topic to educate people about? Oh boy. Um, I think it's become maybe assessing data, which I know sounds kind of crazy, but you know, looking back in my own experience, you know, you're so focused in grad school. Um, and, you know, that's, that's like research. And then it wasn't really until I got out into industry. And I was really lucky to have um, a couple of, of really great mentors that showed me how like their systems for mm-hmm. looking at data, you know, when things aren't right or double checking everything. So that's probably one of my, my favorite things is just how do we look at data and all, what's all the information that we can actually determine from it, especially when things are not going right. Um, I see a lot of people um, like their, their data doesn't quote unquote, turn out good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm always like, what does that mean? Like, you got to tell me exactly what that means. And they, then the thing is, they're like, oh, I, I'm going to reprep it. I'm going to rerun it. I'm going to re-inject it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 back up. There's a lot of clues in this data. There's a lot of information in the data that can indicate to you whether you need to even do that or not. So mm-hmm. people kind of go in this panic mode and they really haven't been taught to sort of go in and get all of the clues and all the information from data. So that's probably one of my, my favorite things to do. And then probably trying to help people implement um, like a process for method development because people have this uh, – and, and I used to be the same way, but uh, they shotgun it. So they just, they just like jump in there and they just try the full method. Things don't work. And then they're like, ah, I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to keep rerunning it and hope it works. And it's like, no, let's not do that. Let's, let's start off at the instrument. Does that work? Then let's start off. Does it look like, what does, what do things look like in matrix? Okay, now let's work on sample preparation. You know, it's like there's this stepwise process that people that is at the end of the day is going to make you more successful and you're going to learn more through that process. So those are those are my two two things I like to do. So, you know, those those are great. And I I'm super curious because I feel like potentially if you were working in any other industry, those things might not even be things that are done at all because everybody's trained in, in you know, a university setting with, with, you know, best practices. And in cannabis, there are a lot of people that have trained themselves, which mm-hmm. is 
is impressive and power to them, but textbooks don't typically include the the troubleshooting section or right. It's like this is how to do it. This yeah. is how to make a method. It's not you, you need the guidance of an advisor, a professor, whomever it is to show you those systems on how to check the data, how to tease out the clues instead of just going back to to the starting line and hoping it works out better next time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, I, when I was younger, I used to do, I used to do the same thing. That's why I kind of laugh about it. Um, and now it's like, if you want to rerun something, you better show me why you better have the data and you better have the one page experimental design of what you're doing. Like that's, that's how I roll now. I love that. It's, uh, you know, cause people just go in and like sort of, go crazy in lab, which I, I get it. Lab work's fun, but, um, yeah, but it, I mean, it also yeah. costs time and money to do these things. Yeah. And, and yeah. the majority of these labs are factories, right? It's, it's yeah, all about yeah, production. production. Yeah. So, 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 and that's, I think, and that's, I think that's part of the mentality that, so, you know, I always say like, sometimes when I go in on site to work with, or maybe not even, even remotely, and I work with a client, like, Honestly, part of what I do a lot of times is just, I just try to break their bad habits, you know, (laughs) and um, because they come from this production mindset of the sample throughput. And it's like, they're not, they weren't even allowed to take two hours and look at data and pull data and run statistics and think about, think about what could be going on. Like, because that time sitting at a computer was looked down upon because they weren't in lab doing something instead of being like, yeah, take the two hours and do it. And then let's figure out like a reasonable plan that's going to be hopefully successful. Right. And so I think that that's, it's, it's this crazy mindset that you get with some of the people that have worked at, you know, different cannabis labs and come in and they're like, ah, you know. So so like if you had a lab and they were in this first group, kind of crazy, not, not as well, tuned to figuring out the problem and then you get them into this new paradigm and they're actually, you know, figuring out problems and whatever and deciding that maybe aspects of their SOPs need to change or whatever. How does that get done within the confines of the 17025 accreditation? How do you like, can you just, change your SOP and file a, a, you know, a change report in, or what's involved there? It kind of depends on how they've set up their system. Um, and so like, how, how are they documenting the initial something triggered, obviously something triggered the event and why you're going back and looking at data. Um, so that may, you know, go in your non-conforming work pathway mm-hmm. um, and it may eventually go into a uh, corrective action pathway. Um, in terms of when you actually make changes to your SOP or your method, um, the impact of it will sort of dictate what work you need to do to then demonstrate that that new method is still fit for a purpose. So for example, like a, a small-ish type change potentially would be um, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a small change. Um, <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. Hey, I mean, there's, not many, there's not actually that many small changes, but, uh, I don't know. May- maybe you actually change your chromatography column, right? Well, there's certain things on the analytical side now that you, you should be re, reassessing. So you can kind of think of it as like a mini, like a mini verification or a verification in terms of chromatography separation. Um, you know, is your resolution as good? Is it repeatable? So you should be collecting that data, right. That shows that this change has now has not impacted it or has it impacted it in a certain way. Um, see if it's changed your, if you need to your LOD or LOQ for some reason. Um, but you wouldn't necessarily need to spend a whole lot of time like revalidating your sample preparation, right? Because that that hasn't changed. Okay, so you can you, know? do, you can change pieces and validate 
those changes essentially. Yeah, yeah. So whatever you, whatever it touches, right? You mm-hmm. you would want to verify at least. Yeah. So. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So, what do you think are the biggest challenges facing cannabis testing laboratories and method development, like in general? Oh God. Um, inexperience. Mm. Um, so inexperience, uh, lack of resources. Sure. So I, I don't, I've never ever had a conversation with somebody that wanted to start a lab or who has started a lab that had enough money and had realistic realistic time frames. Not <laughs> never, not one time. That's a, that's wow. telling. <laughs> yeah. So, so those are the, the, those are probably just the, the two big things. I mean, those are your, your main inputs, right. And people generally go in without, uh, without enough of, of those things, experienced staff, money and time. Uh, the, the, the money <laughs> so. bit. Yeah. And the, and the money bit kind of fuels the other two categories, right? Yes. Because, uh, and I, I understand the difficulties around that because like, it's really hard to tell investors, I need $5 million and you're not going to see any return for at least the first year while we're getting set up. And then like, it's going to be slow going. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So like, what is the incentive for people to start cannabis testing labs? then? I mean, it just sounds like really hard. I mean, I think for scientists, it's exciting. Um, right. It's a neat challenge. The matrix, it, 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 the, it, yeah. the analysis, all of that. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, so I think that the there's business. that. <laughs> but the business is really, really challenging. I mean, quite frankly, anyone that's getting into this to think they're going to make a boatload of money is, I mean, they might as well just buy a boat. I mean, that's <laughs> going to be better use of their money. So um, not to say that there aren't labs out there that have kind of figured it out, but, um, you know, and I think there is opportunity, especially with like newer states coming on or states that are going from med to rec. So I, I do think kind of smart about it. You know, if you're, if you, if you have a, enough resources to, to make that that big dump initially and get the staff and the instrumentation in the facility and, and get up and running, you know, I do think you have a chance to kind of be like first to market. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some people that want to, you know, cannabis in general is like an exciting industry and I think they want to be in it, but they're maybe not super comfortable growing or selling. Mm-hmm. And so they're, this is a way for them to be involved without that sort of direct activity yeah. uh you know yeah all you need is a dea license simple. <laughs> 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 well kind of along those lines though it can do you have to be just a cannabis testing lab i mean obviously there's labs that are not they do cannabis testing and they do other testing so is is that like an easier model to follow like if you're an environmental lab and then you just have like a cannabis room or something i think it just really depends i think it's case by case because this is this is what I see. So in that scenario, you have a laboratory that's going to be accustomed to operating in a regulated environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's already a huge advantage, right? Maybe they're 17025. That's a huge advantage. Um, they have some level of expertise with instrumentation. Uh, and if you're a food testing lab and you're switching over to cannabis, if you're going ag to ag, there's less of a learning curve. You're going from environmental, which is water, soil, EPA methods, very prescribed typically, to now basically ag cannabis, where there's not really prescribed methods. You're in a very, very difficult matrix. I think people think that their expertise in one market will carry over exactly. And I see people really struggle with that. Like people coming from pharma 
Uh, it's like it's like a totally different world i mean sorry but we're testing more than one compound and we're testing it in an ag product and yeah in ag product in food product in right so in in all the in all the sub matrices that aren't allowed in pharma (laughs) yeah right so i i think i think if you have the if you have the people that understand that they they bring some experience and expertise but the roles of the road are different scientifically like there's best practices and the way to do things and it's not how they do it but i've worked with people that come out of pharma that come out of environmental and they just they cannot in their mind make the adjustments and accept things because they've been doing something some way for a very very long time you know and sometimes it's easier just to get someone like younger and just and just train them honestly so so it's a double-edged sword i think in those situations so so you your expertise is chemistry right in i would say analytical chemistry yeah okay analytical chemistry but yeah chemistry yeah so how do you handle assessing the bits that are about microbiology? Uh, I've trained myself up enough that I I can kind of understand it and do it, but I just, it's just not, uh, it's not an area of expertise for me. So it's just a matter of training and, uh, you know, I've gotten qualified in lab to run it. So it's like, I know, I know enough, but that must that must have been hard enough because I mean chemists are not really taught aseptic technique. No, no, we are not. No, we are not. That is very very true. No, it's just I mean I think it's just a matter of uh, finding the people out there that know what they're doing and like begging beg them to train you <laughs> and help you out. Um, uh, it's probably nice knowing Julia Bramante, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she, definitely. She's, she's quite good at what she does as well. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, the one thing I do, you know, I try to take advantage of is, you know, when I do go to a conference, like we have some micro bio panels and talks, you know, coming up in April. And, you know, I, I try to sit in on, I mean, I sit in on those and try to educate myself, you know, so. Yeah. Got to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of the conference, uh, obviously we are thrilled to have you on board as our analytical program chair for the Canvas Science Conference this year. Can you share some of the goals that you had for the analytical track at this year's two shows? Uh, yeah. So I think my main goal was to just focus on um, really technical talks as well as um, talks that I think fit a like an array uh, array of areas so um, I'm pretty excited that we have some talks on vaping um, and like vaping like how that works and what that means for analytical chemistry and um, we have microbiology talks we have some like practical compliance focused talks um, and so I think we wanted to keep it technical, have an, an array of subjects. Um, and then I'm really hoping for um, the fall to kind of continue that trend. I'd like to focus um, a little bit on a little bit more on uh, compliance testing. I know people think that it's all figured out. It's not, I promise you. It's definitely um, not. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, hopefully try to create a little bit of a community where labs can come in and talk and exchange heartache and ideas <laughs> um, and, and maybe some training as well. So yeah. I, I love that. I think, you know, there's the interactive bit is potentially so valuable and uh we could stand to do more of it. So uh, that, that seems exciting for sure. And, and I look forward to whatever kind of, uh, kind of workshop 
type things uh, that that might come come from this concept. Yep, I agree. It's it's time we can all we can all work together. I promise. (laughs) There is definitely enough opportunity and more than enough problems to tackle. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So um, are there any talks in particular for for the show next month in Portland that you are especially excited for? I, I know all three of us read all these abstracts and uh, there were certainly some interesting ones. Are there any on the top of your mind? Uh, yeah, so there's, there's a, a few items I'm really looking forward to. Um, again, the vaping. So uh, we have a vaping of synthetic cannabinoids um, out of Portland State, Dr. Robert Strogan. Oh, Dr. Strogan is is Strongin, like the yeah. vaping guru, right? Yeah, I and and this is something that people always say. Well, we need to be testing and we need to be investigating more in, um, you know, how it's consumed and and things like that. And it, it's it's really a niche science mm-hmm. that type of testing and and so I'm excited to hear that. Um, Dr. Mark Crossway is going to give actually a, a webinar later this month, I think on the 28th, March 28th, which I'm really excited for. Um, so he he's actually an old buddy I know from back in the pesticide, Florida pesticide residue workshop, southern section of AOAC. And uh, so pesticide residue chemist for Florida State for a while. That's how I met him. But then he moved on to uh, Altria and then Joel. And so he's an excellent scientist and he also has this great knowledge base now about all of the mechanics and physics behind vaping and aerosols and testing them. And so I'm excited for that webinar, but he's also gonna be giving a couple of talks. Um, so that's, that's something I'm really interested in learning more about for sure. Um, and then really two more cool. things, the uh, the proficiency testing panel I'm interested in because anyone that has to do proficiency testing in this market knows that it is in like the top three pains because, well, we'll let the panel discuss why. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Um, so I'm interested to hear that because they have like a range of different people on that panel, which I think will be really good. Um, and then also I'm always interested in being able to catch some of the microbiology talks as well in panels. So, yeah. So lots of good stuff. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. My question is, do you have any idea? ideas on how to fix the lab shopping and THC inflation issue. And is this something that maybe is discussed in your working group at AOAC even? I I think it's a subject kind of behind the scenes that we've been talking about a little bit. Um, so, you know, AOAC is really a, you know, methods standards organization. So that's their, their primary focus. And so from the technical aspect, I think part of it is um, because it's, it's such an issue in the market, does that help us maybe prioritize um, certain projects over others? Or is there anything that, that, CASP can do from a technical standpoint that would help. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that, I think that develops this year. Um, I'm still, I'm waiting for my next assignment actually <laughs> for <laughs> see what next project we'll be working on. Um, but in terms of fixing it, I mean, I wish I had all the answers. Um, I don't, I think there's, a few, I think there's a couple of things that always come to my mind. I mean, part, part of it is the perception, obviously that people want high THC, THCA product. Um, I feel like as scientists, we need to stop using the word potency because it's not what we're doing, but 
also by just using the term, I think it helps to ingrain the idea that cannabinoid concentration is linked very directly to the effect, right? And, and the so, intensity of the effect. Yes, mm -hmm. and the intensity. And so may, maybe we need to, as scientists, not use that word anymore um, and then maybe push it from our end. I mean, unfortunately, it's written into regulations and stuff sometimes, but I, I think it's got to start somewhere. There's got to be some group that says, like, this isn't correct, so we're not going to do it. Uh, so maybe a scientist can start can start that, and eventually it'll it'll kind of you know kill kill the term uh, in the market. Um, I think the other thing is. There are issues with testing, um, which is hard to get into, but I think there's two, two main things I, that I always consider. One is measurement uncertainty. So I don't oh. know how many times, I don't know how many times I, when I was working in a lab that we would get calls or I would talk to a client about, well, we sent this to you and we sent the same flower to somebody else and we're getting different results. And my answer would be like, yeah, they might be different. I mean, like how different is it? Is yeah, a good question, how, how right? different? I mean, because like we have a measurement uncertainty at every measurement, no matter what you're measuring, has an uncertainty associated with it. Mm -hmm. It's never just a number. Right. So right. there's error. Right? You see all these graphs and they don't include error bars. And it's like, well, that's yeah. not yeah. a and, complete picture. Right. <laughs> yeah. And inserts like certificates of analysis for products and stuff, you very rarely see their measurement uncertainty listed. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, that's interesting. Yeah. But so that's interesting. So, uh, you know, a lot of these things, it's tough to attack from the AOAC side yeah. in, in terms of like the SMPRs and all of that. But I suppose part of an SMPR could be the demand to report measurement uncertainty. It is now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, that was a change, I think, last year or maybe even end of the year before is that um, there's, it's supposed to be included in SMPRs moving forward. So... Yeah, I, it will be now. I think that that's yeah. low hanging fruit for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, people don't understand that if you say 24 and 26, I mean, maybe that's the same. We don't know because we don't know what their measurement uncertainty is. We don't, you know, we know what ours is, but we don't know what theirs is. Um, and, so that's, and, that's one right. thing, one and, big and, thing. And we know in general, at best, it appears to be plus or minus 2%. At best. At best. Yeah. So, and what if it's six? We don't know. Yeah, we don't right. know, right? Um, so that's one thing that I think we have to keep kind of hammering at, at people is, is it's not just the number, right? It's always a range. Um, and then the other thing that I keep thinking about um, and kind of coming out of like food and ag a little bit is you know sampling so huge and how we sample is based on characteristics of the the crop that we're you know we need to sample as well as the analytes right and it's it's the distribution of of those things that we then determine what an appropriate sampling scheme is um we don't even know if a lot of flour can be defined by a single number. We do not know what bud A and bud Z at the other end of the grow room, we have, why are we assuming that they should be the same? Do, does nature always produce things in the exact same number? No. So why are we putting a single number I, <laughs> on something that potentially will never be a single number? No, of it, course it won't. It, even within... No. Even within a single plant, there's exactly. variability. Yeah, but they but the top or the bottom. Yeah, it's like so yeah. much variability. So, so why? So, but but now we're forced into the situation where we're trying to put a single number on, uh, like pounds and pounds of 
material, we have no idea how we should be sampling that, quite frankly, as far as I'm concerned, because we don't know what the distribution of cannabinoids is in, under different grow conditions. That's a big part of how you select your sampling scheme. And to my knowledge, we don't have the data for that. So, I, I certainly have never heard of anybody yeah, so, producing that data. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I feel like there's this assumption that was made somewhere early on that we should be defining a natural product flower and not a formulated product by a single number. Yeah. And I just don't, I just don't know that we have the data to show that that's a reasonable thing to do. I, that what you're saying makes perfect sense. And, uh, I, I, sometimes I use this as sales arguments even because it's like, if you can get more information, it's probably going to serve you. How, how do you say one gram is representative of a pound? Like it's, uh, okay, I'm going to buy 10,000 pounds of biomass for my extraction process. And you're going to give me one piece of paper. Like yeah. that, that doesn't seem right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think that it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, people go out and buy stuff off the shelf and there's not shelf life studies, but also, I mean, they're individual buds that are from a lot and you tested a different portion of the lot yeah. and the sampling. I mean, so like, why would you expect it to be the same? You know, I don't know. Um, so I think that those all contribute to it because those are, those are really big gaps that may just be making the numbers kind of like irrelevant almost. Um, and so in that case, I think it makes it really easy for people. I mean, there are people that are just cheating. I mean, that yeah, absolutely happens. Sure. Um, and I, I think, you know, economic pressure is huge in this market. And so that people that don't intend to do it, I think get in situations where they feel like they're forced to do it. Or it's the only way. Um, I hey, mean, I mean, if, you know. A dispensary buyer says, I don't buy anything that says less than 20%. Yeah. What are you supposed to do? Like the, yeah. the economics argument and pressure is intense. And at the end of the day, if you can't sell what you've made, then yeah. you basically haven't made anything. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then uh, that gets trickled onto the lab, that pressure, right? Like we can't test with you if you, we can't get the numbers yeah. we need, you know? So, um, I, yeah, I think the economics has to be fixed. Do, so do you think that maybe there's some way, I'm not asking you to come up with the way, but some way to, <laughs> to break the financial tie between the lab and the operator? Because I think that's the, that's the issue, right? Like, the, the economic incentives are mismatched. If, mm -hmm. if the business relationship wasn't between the lab and the operator, then the operator can't put that pressure on the lab to, to misreport. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe there's a way. Um, I, I see that if you could, yeah, if you could break that, right? I mean... Yeah, maybe there's a way to do that. I'm not. I'm not sure what it is. I, I'm not sure what it is yeah, either. Like my my, my initial thought. Saying. My initial thought was like, okay, everybody submits their samples to the state, and the state doles them out according to the docket of the labs. And so you're not getting the same lab every time. Like, and you're not picking the lab. The state is just doing the round robin distribution, and so you pay your fixed testing rate uh but uh, you know that yeah. is putting the government in between which yeah, is like right, right. not necessarily the right answer either. yeah that i mean that was kind of my initial thought and i didn't even say it because i was like i don't know i mean do we really want to yeah right put put more <laughs> you know, layers government of government control <laughs> yeah yeah so i i don't know i mean it's it's a complicated system. Uh, I mean, I, it, it comes down to kind of consumer, what consumers buy 
in the economics, the whole economic structure. I mean, quite frankly, the prices that labs are getting, the the fees that they're charging for testing are ridiculous. They're so low. You know? Yeah. Yeah, so, for sure. And and you can see that it's it's driven by economic pressures, right? Yeah. Because yeah. in these states that are new to open and those pressures haven't really aggregated yet, the testing costs are much, much higher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, how much quality in quality control can you implement if you're, you know, yeah. not really making profit off your testing? You know, you start, that's when you start trimming, trimming stuff back, you know? Yeah. So it's not good for anyone, for sure. Wow. That is, sounds very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, let's look into like the crystal ball here. What do you hope to see in the analytical testing community in the next five years regarding general cannabis education, best practices for method development, anything else? And, and what do you think it would take to actually get us there? Oh, boy. I... In five years, if there was a scientific community that actually spoke to each other and helped each other and came together and worked on those best practices and had a united front, that would make me really happy. So I, I, think, I, think, we just, I think we just need to keep bugging people about it you know, meeting up with people and trying to trying to get to the point where they realize it's not, you know, sharing information and, and talking is not going to be detrimental to their business. Oh, right. you you mean their methods are not confidential IP? I mean, no, nobody's doing anything <laughs> like out of this world. We're all doing the same. We're all doing different flavors of the same thing, you know. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, there's only so many instrument manufacturers. There's only so many column types out there. Like, yeah, yeah. So it just comes down to to sort of order of operations and and how much uh, how much you want to put in. Yeah. So I, that's what I would like to see. I'd, I'd love like to, to see that. See a, a, a community that really supports each other and can have a united front. You know. So, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, get there. <laughs> we, I, I think we're we're slowly making progress. I, I, and and I feel like it's slow. It's slow. It's for sure. It's slow. And and of course, you know, two plus years of pandemic conditions didn't help yeah, anything. It did not. That's, yeah. That is very true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, I, I, you know, I, I feel, I, I was saying this to somebody else before. We, we went out to MJ BizCon in the fall and I was, I was a little bit scared because I thought that the general energy and sentiment there would be super depressed, right? With everything that's going on in the West Coast. Yeah. And that was not the experience I had. I felt like there was a lot of energy. There was a lot of, of positivity and, and the belief that there's opportunities out there. And I think that, you know, as long as that temperament is maintained across the industry, we, we have the potential to make progress. And so, yeah, uh, it's been slow going, but with with more states coming online and everything, there's there's we're we're headed towards some kind of critical mass. What what that's going to result in, I'm not sure yet. But hopefully, as a group, we can we can push that towards something positive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, there's still a lot of enthusiasm, and um, you know, yeah, it's important to stay positive. It can be difficult in this market sometimes. Uh, just yeah. being honest. Yes. But I don't know. I mean, that's but I mean that's why I'm still in it. You know, is if if I can help, I'm gonna help. So that's Great. all I can do. <laughs> so, yeah. Beautiful. So, is there anything else you'd like to to add before we go? 
No, thank you guys so much for having me on and letting me chat and talk about some important, important things that <laughs> my soapbox issues. So I appreciate it. No, we appreciate you and everything that, that you do for, for the greater scientific cannabis community as a whole. Thank you. So thanks for being with us today, Julie. We appreciate all your knowledge and your passion to help educate the cannabis community. And uh, we look forward to seeing you uh, at Cannabis Science Conference in Portland on 420.